0: Be seated. Amen. And I should have said the teenagers, you are in here with us this evening while Brother Zach is away. We were going to make Wes teach everybody, but it was, yeah, he said, I just finished doing that with the church on Wednesday night. So take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We're going to look at this evening, three Bible fools. Three fools that we find in the Bible. First Samuel chapter 26, I want to read a verse, and then at the very end I will come back and tie in this verse and statement from King Saul, I think in a very appropriate and applicable way. Joked with Jessica this afternoon. I was going to put for the slides tonight three fools, and then put my three boys. And then she said, "You better not do that." <clears throat> so Drew is looking dumbstruck over there. The other two boys would probably like, "Yeah, it makes sense." Um, probably about the way it goes. First Samuel twenty-six. We come to. Saul being confronted by David. David has spared his life. This is now the second time in which David could have killed Saul and taken the kingly throne. And in the process of it, Saul has revealed in his own heart just how wicked he's been towards David. And here's what he says, and I think it's interesting because it's the first time that anyone in the Bible assigns personhood to the fool. The word folly and foolishness is used before this in the Bible, but this is the first time that fool is used as a name or a moniker for someone, and it is rightly used of King Saul, and he uses it on himself. Look what the Bible says in chapter 26 and verse 21. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, he says, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Father, this evening as we come to you and your book, we ask for help as we examine what a fool is. We seem to live in an age of fools. And it likely is so that we do, for all of mankind in their rejection of you is a fool. Lord, I pray this evening that as we examine these fools, we would see just what makes them so, and that we might avoid being them ourselves. Help us, I pray, this evening as we come and study this topic in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible has much to say about the fool. King Saul makes the first mention of the name fool assigned to himself. My fear as a pastor is that many Christians, some maybe even in our own church family, far too often play the fool. Tonight, I want to look at three Bible fools, then close with a hopefully practical application from 2 Peter chapter 1 so that we might understand how we can avoid playing the fool, but also how we interact with them. There's a lot of foolishness in this world that comes from a lot of fools that we see around us. Now, I'm going to use that word a lot tonight, but I would remind you one time the Bible speaks about a fool. Jesus warns, don't go around calling people fools. He said, because when you do, you yourself are in danger of hell fire. It's an admonition from the Lord, so we ought to listen. So tonight I'm going to try and avoid naming any particular fools, though I will note foolish behavior in three groups of people that the Bible teaches us about tonight. Take your Bibles now and turn over to Psalm chapter 14. Or swipe in your Bible if you have your digital Bible with you. I'm still getting used to saying that. Probably always will. We begin this evening with the skeptical fool. The skeptical fool. One who looks at us as simpletons. You poor, poor Christians. I feel so bad for you that you believe in that hoax and myth that you call a God. We've all met people like that who themselves are skeptical fools towards Almighty God. The psalmist says this in Psalm 14, in the first six verses. He said, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Here's what the psalmist says of that fool. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There's none that doeth good. By the way, as we read this, we will hear or seemingly hear Paul's words in Romans chapter 3. The Bible says in verse 2, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. The result, verse 3, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers iniquity, of iniquity have no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. By the way, that's the hope for us in confronting the fool. Ye have shamed the counsel or the wisdom and knowledge of the poor. By the way, <clears throat> the phrase poor here refers to those of us who hold to the truth of Almighty God, who trust in God. They have shamed our counsel. That sounds a lot like today how Christians are treated in the wider world. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. How foolish of you, they say to us, to run to God for your refuge. And God says, how foolish of you not to. Verse 1 says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Can I tell you that even those who openly say they are atheist or agnostic, they're lying. You say, well, how do you know that? You don't know my heart, the skeptical fool might say to me. And the answer is, no, but you do. Every person believes this life and the afterlife by faith. Everyone believes in the beginning of all things by faith. Everyone. There is no empirical evidence as to how it all began. We, by faith, believe there was creation. And we can see proof of it in the order and the design, in all of the fine-tuning and everything else that we see. We, by faith, trusting in God, can see the orderliness of all things created. The fool, the atheist, the agnostic, the evolutionary scientist, they cannot. But by faith, they plunge forward, continually trying to prove a theory that has no grounds. No man is convinced that there is not a God. There is no proof that there is no God. There is abundant proof to quite the contrary, that there is a God. From the presence of threes in the universe, anytime a skeptical fool ever comes to you and starts questioning your God, just ask him about all the threes they find in the universe. All of the atomic level structure of this universe is built on threes. An electron, a proton, and a neutron. Those three together speak to the stamp of the creator on everything. It's how the universe literally is structured. Not by accident, by design. The simple fact of logic and reasoning also speaks to a God. Laws and their seeming immutability... Speak to a God. The atheist, we are told, willfully suppresses the truth. Turn your Bibles over and look in Romans chapter 1. Yes, we'll put it on the board, but I think there's a couple of verses, if you have your Bible, you should highlight or underline this evening. Romans chapter number 1. <clears throat> if you know anything about the book of Romans, Paul is addressing here how mankind generally as a group... Dismissed God. How mankind generally sins by rejecting God. In fact, what he's doing is defining the error in the skeptical fool in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, notice the next phrase, and it's a good phrase to underline who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Do you know what that phrase means? Go back to it for me, Randy. Let's stay there for a second. Do you know what that phrase means? Who hold the truth? If you were to look at the original language, it literally has the idea that they have the evident truth right in front of them, but instead they try to suppress the truth. They try to cover up or conceal the truth. They try to deny what the truth actually says. So it literally has the idea of who hold down or press down the truth. It is obvious in front of their face, but they turn away from it. They want nothing to do with it. Paul goes on then in verse number 19. He says, because that which may be known of God is manifest where? Notice this phrase. In them. I one time worked with someone when I was still working at the Pentagon who claimed to be an atheist. And I was very green in my own spiritual walk. I should have been much further along for the age that I was in life, but because of choices I made in a foolish way throughout my teenage years, I was not as mature or grounded spiritually as I ought to have been. But I did challenge this guy who was very adamant one day at lunch in the food court at Landmark Mall in Arlington, Virginia. He said to me, there is no God. And I thought in my mind immediately... Huh, I think the Bible says there's a guy like you. And the only response I could come up with in the immaturity of the moment was, go home, look yourself in the mirror in the eye and prove it to yourself. Six weeks later, that young man, Sean, came to me and said, you know, I may not be right. (laughs) I didn't know I was a prophet back then or a preacher, but I simply said, you go convince yourself. That there is no no God. You don't need to try to convince me. I know there is one. The skeptical fool has the truth manifest in themselves. He goes on and says in verse 19, For God hath showed it unto them. Well, how did God show it to them? How did he manifest it in them? Verse 20, For the invisible things. Again, you should underline that. He is talking about the unseeable truths, laws of nature. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are what? Clearly seen. Not like, well, you might stumble upon them. No. Paul says, look, it's obvious. Everywhere you look. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. This is a direct link to creation so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, because that, when they knew God, now this is when he's talking about mankind generally in Revelation, in the age of the flood as it built up to the time of Noah, those people knew God. They knew the Garden of Eden. This is what Paul is unfolding in the book of Romans chapter 1. They had the opportunity. They knew God. They knew the stories because those people lived for so long. When they knew God, it says they glorified Him not as God. Neither were they thankful. They weren't grateful for what He had done for them in creating them. But instead, Paul Paul says, they became vain in their imaginations or in the manner of their thinking, the way they processed things. And their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22 is a great one as well. Professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. Tools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. I often wonder, the first guy in the pre-flood world who came to the other guy in the tribe and said, Hey, I think we should bow down to this wooden image I whittled with, the, with my knife. What did the second guy say? Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. You see, when you stop and look at idols and idolatry in that way, it's comical. And yet sometimes we think, well, I don't know, pastor. Maybe there are a lot of gods out there. No, there's one. Mankind has corrupted the worship of God because they hate God. They are skeptical fools. But by the grace of God, there go we. It is high time that believers went on the offensive with these facts from Romans chapter 1. We far too often let others, the skeptical fools, out in the broader world beat us into submission, thinking that we are nothing more than simpletons who know nothing but by faith. We have the facts. We have the truth. We're not suppressing it or holding it down. We're embracing it. We love it. It sets us free. The truth has a way of doing that, Jesus said. The scientific community knows that their calculations, their theorems, their cosmologies... ...all require a purposeful, powerful, and particular beginning. They willfully reject who began it. That's what the psalmist is saying. The fool hath said in his heart... I don't want this God, is what he goes on to say. They are skeptical. By the way, Paul ran into them. Take your Bibles and go from Romans 1 back to Acts chapter 17. Paul ran into such a lot. He's traveling and he's preaching and he's planting churches. He met this group on Mars Hill. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse number 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. By the way, whenever the apostle Paul's spirit was stirred, you probably should watch out. Something good was about to happen and you're about to read something good that's going to happen in the word of God. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics, let's pause right here in verse number eighteen. The Epicureans believed wholly that the senses are the only reliable source of information about the world. Their father of their philosophy was Epicurus himself. He regarded gut feelings as the ultimate authority on matters of morality and held that whether a person feels an action is right or wrong is far more important than the actual ethics, maxims, rules, or reason on the matter. That's what an Epicurean was. Now, let's keep reading in verse number 18. And some said, what will this babbler say? Those are the Epicureans. That's their skeptical, foolish attack on what we believe. What Paul was teaching. And we'll come to what he was teaching in just a moment. The Stoics are the other ones mentioned here. The Stoics had logic as their guide. We learn from history that the Stoic world is composed of material things, and everything comes to the irreducible element of right reason and logic. They are the Spocks of the world, the Stoics. All things they say are governed by fate, and they would say it in such a voice as well, in which virtue is inherent. Well, it happened, it must be right. Okay. The goal for the Stoic and the goal for the human race is to live according to nature in agreement with the design of fate. There was no room for God, one author said, for he was not tangible, he was not touchable, nor to the Stoic could he be comprehensible. They are the skeptical fools who at the end of verse 18 cry this if we keep reading. Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. Listen, this is just another guy adding a god to your list. Don't listen to him. The Epicureans and the Stoics, my friend, are found all through our academic and scientific communities today. There is nothing new under the sun. So how should, would, or ought one to reach such a skeptical fool? I'm glad you ask. Paul was stirred in the spirit, and I too am to share that with you this evening from Acts chapter 17. The Bible tells us, if we were to keep reading, that these Stoics, in verse number 22, bring Paul into a courtroom or into an area where they are set. And in verse 22, the Bible says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are to what? You're overthinking it. Some things in life are taken by faith. Is that all he said? No, let's keep going. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. You people are so loony, you'd literally made an idol that said, in case there's a God we missed. When Stephen Hawking died, Towards the end of his life, and I've read several of his books, I'm fascinated by him, especially his books on the dimensions of the universe. Do I believe what he believed? No, but his math is good. So I've been told by those mathematicians that are much smarter than me, he was a highly intelligent human being. Towards the end of his life, when they were colliding and CERN those those, uh, particles, and the Higgs boson was recognized, and and they got down to the deepest molecular level, in that process, he said, there's no escaping fine-tuning. There's no escaping that there is a God in the God particle. In other words, the avowed atheist, the skeptical fool said, I can't figure it out. Maybe there's an unknown God. It's no different than what they what Paul addresses on Mars Hill. He goes on and says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship Him, Him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in the temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations have been, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if... Happily, or if perchance, they might feel after him, or they might stumble upon him, he says, and find him. Though, Paul says, he be not far from every one of us. For in him, in that unknown God that you're ignorantly worshiping, worshiping, in him we live. In him we move. In him we have our being. As certain also of your own poets. Oh, he used their own wisdom against them. By the way, you cannot just ignorantly float through life, believer. The only way that we can answer the skeptical fool is with the wisdom of God's word. For we are also his offspring. Verse 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices... And the times of this ignorance, Paul says, God winked at or he winced at like, oh, how did you skeptical fools get so bad? That's what it means he winked at it. It doesn't mean he went, oh, I get it. That's not what that phrase means. It literally means that God in heaven says, oh, what's wrong with you? But now... But now, he says, now that grace has come in the person of Jesus Christ, but now he commandeth all men everywhere to what? Repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's Jesus Christ, by the way. Wherefore, he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. The Athenians, like the atheists and agnostics today, were polite towards people of faith, but ultimately dismissive. They were the skeptical fool. Paul addresses the skeptical fool, the one who blatantly knows in both their gut, Epicureans, and in their logic, the Stoics, that there must be a beginner to the beginning. Their response, some mocked. There's the skeptical fool. But what does it say also in verse 32 if you're still there? Some believed. Can I tell you something? Your job is not to convince the skeptical fool. It's just to present to them the truth. The second fool is worse than the mere skeptical fool. And by the way, within the church today, we often set the skeptical fool up as the big bugaboo. Oh, brother, there is somebody out there that doesn't believe in God. Well, there's a lot of people out there that don't believe in God. There are millions upon billions in China and India, the two most populous nations, that have never even heard the name Jesus. There is far more people who say there is no singular God or no God at all than there are of us who believe in a God. We set them up as the big bugaboo, but the worst of the two, or of the three really, is the second one, and that is the scorning fool. Take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs 14. Proverbs chapter 14. It's Bible sword drill night tonight. I haven't done this in a while. I didn't give you any notes to write down because I didn't know where you would stick your notes as you were flipping through all the Bible. Plus, it's not really that hard to stay up with the outline tonight. The skeptical, the scorning, and then there will be the secular fool. That's it. Pretty simple. Proverbs 14, in verse number 6, the Bible says this, A scorner seeketh wisdom, and findeth it not. But knowledge is easy unto him that understandeth. Go from the presence of a foolish man, when thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. What makes them foolish is just how obvious their lies are. Fools make a mock at sin, the Bible says. But among the righteous there is favor. Two verses that I would call to our attention on the scorning fool in this passage. Verse 6, a scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not. It's not that it can't be found. They just don't want to accept what the answer is. In verse number 9, the Bible says, fools make a mock at sin. (laughs) It's not that bad. What can you do then with a scorner? What should you do then with a scorner? Proverbs 15 and verse 12, after all, tells us this. A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he go unto the wise. I have three categories or three groups that I would say we have to deal with scorners in in our lives. First, in the church. What do we do if there is someone in the church body that just thumbs their nose at what the Bible says and they're a part of our church family? Oof, that's tough. It is tough, but Matthew chapter 18, Jesus speaking on how we operate within this local body, the church, Jesus himself tells us how we deal with a scorner in the church. And the answer is, ultimately, if they stay scorning, we have to remove them. We have to cast them out. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 15, the Bible says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That is the ultimate objective when someone has wronged you. You go to them and address the wrong clearly. This is the ought. This is what you did. I would like for you to seek forgiveness from me. You say, well, that seems a bit brash. No, listen, that person has violated the word of God and they've trespassed against you. Your job is to go. The Bible even says, Jesus even says, leave your offerings and go and take care of any aughts before you offer anything to God. So Jesus here says, look, go and do that. And if he will listen, he's gained the brother. But what did we learn about the scorner? He doesn't want to listen, So Jesus goes on and addresses this. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It becomes a legal setting. It's not a he said, she said, or he said, he said. Instead, now, it is, this is what happened. You are admitting this is what happened. You are scorning the word of God. You are making a mockery at sin. You will not change. You are doing this, and you're saying this in front of two other witnesses. Yes, I am. Okay, the matter is established. He then goes on and says that if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, if he scorns them... Let him be unto thee. Let him be unto you, the church members, as a heathen man and a publican. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, go and hate the guy. He just says, remove them from your company. You know, we are supposed to love the publicans. We are supposed to reach the heathen and the sinner with Jesus Christ. We're still uh, engaging in trying to gain our brother. But if they are the scorning fool then buddy, you're going to have a hard time reaching them in their state of scorning. So the Bible says. If you go to your brother and the response is to mock you or dismiss you in your efforts to help or to restore to the faith, then Jesus says take a witness so that every word is sure. If they still refuse, if they still do not love the reproof, according to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 12, then take it before the church. If they still reject the correction, remove them. That seems severe. But that's how you handle a scorning fool. How do you handle it in your home then? This one is even harder. Well, pastor, I raised them this way. They've been taught the truth. How do I handle my daughter or my son? How do I handle my relationships with this friend? In the home, you relegate them. If in the church you remove them, in your family, it's not like you're kicking them out of the family. All right, Kyle, my dad might have said to me back in my time, walking away from God, I'm removing the Fannin name from you. He didn't do that. I don't think legally he could have done that. Maybe he could have. I don't know. I'm glad he didn't. We would say you relegate that fool. Here's what Proverbs says in Proverbs 22 and verse 10. It's pretty pretty firm, pretty stark. Cast out the scorner. You know, the beauty of God's word, it doesn't mince words. Well, but pastor, cast out the scorner. What does the casting out of the scorner get for you? What does the rest of the verse say? And contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. In my 15 years of pastoring, on occasion, I have had to tell homes over the years in this position of pastor, whether it's a son or whether it's a daughter, if your child mocks, scoffs, and generally dismisses all of your beliefs, you have no obligation to care for them. And I pray to God that it's never the case for Jessica and I and our three boys. Because the counsel to me would be the same. Well, I can't just cast them out of my life. No, but you should relegate them to a position of you don't believe what I believe. You've rejected what I have earnestly taught you, what I believe in my heart. And therefore, instead of having contention and heartache and strife, I'm going to treat you like a heathen or a publican in the church setting. And in our home, in our life, in our family, I'm going to have to relegate you to a very small area. That's tough. It's difficult. It seems harsh. Again, this is not for a kid that just mouths off one time. <laughs> I don't want anybody going home like, all right, buddy, pastor, give me the green light. <laughs> you mouth off once, buddy, and I'm kicking you in the backyard. You better like that tent. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about someone who adamantly rejects what you firmly believe. They're a scorning fool. Cast them out. So how do we handle it in society? That's the third area. I think the answer is repudiate. If in the church we are to remove so that the church is without spot or wrinkle, and in the home we are to relegate them to minimal roles of influence in our lives, then in society, I mean, we can't go around kicking people around, right? No, we're Christians. But we should repudiate. That means speak against it clearly, definitively. Don't engage in debate, just make a statement. Proverbs 24 and verse 9 says, The thought of foolishness is sin. And the scorner is an abomination to whom? Men. That means all men. By the way, in our country, in our land, it's almost desensitizing to see just how often crimes are committed and unpunished. It's very difficult. I pray earnestly for our police officers, our law enforcement. I pray earnestly for our communities, especially central Kentucky. I pray that what goes on in some of these cities in our country never makes its way here. Where a Walgreens literally has to wall up everything and put a kiosk, when you go into the store, you're basically shopping online in San Francisco right now. Everything is behind barricaded doors. And you at the kiosk have to tell the person behind what you want. And they will come and sheepishly hand through the bars. Here. Because we have a society of people who scorn the rule of law. We must repudiate it. It is wrong. And they are an abomination to our society. They can be redeemed. Jesus died for their souls. But so long as they live that life of scorning, the rule of law, they are an abomination to men, the Bible says. By the way, the modern rush towards transgender depravity is the result of our society not repudiating homosexuality in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It became normalized. That lifestyle became accepted in the 90s. Why didn't we repudiate that lifestyle then? And the answer is because increasingly we allowed in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and into the early 60s, adultery and infidelity. My boys love, we have the entire uh, library of I love Lucy. We love Lucy in our house. But even in that, there are some episodes that they're doing and Jessica and I are like, That was in the early 60s. Fellas, you can't watch that one. On their list, they literally have a laminated list of all the DVDs, and there's red lines through the ones they're not allowed to watch. On Lucy for crying out loud. Why? Because we didn't repudiate evil then. It's all a trickle down effect. When we didn't repudiate it then, we ended up with homosexuality being normalized. By the way, here's my question, and I know the teenagers are in here, so be careful in how I word this. But what comes after transgenderism being normalized? Mm. You can already see it. They're trying to say that pedophilia is just not that bad. They've already begun to have that conversation. That means within two or three decades, that's going to be the next thing we normalize. Are you okay with that? And the answer is no, because the scorning fool is an abomination to men. They're scorning what God says. When those who scorn sin are allowed to be normalized, then that sin only grows worse. It reaches a point where ethical people are in a quandary as to how we can deal with it. How do we fix this? And the answer is through repudiation. We must say clearly and succinctly, that is wrong, and you know it. That's how you deal with it. By the way, we also have to go to punishing those who are doing wrong. Proverbs 21 and verse 11, here's the ultimate way to deal with the scorner. When the scorner is punished, the simple is made what? You know how you don't have a second generation of scorners? Punish those scorners. I'm not running for president. I don't have a platform on this, though maybe I should. You know how you deal with the problems in society? Deal with the problems in society. Stop burying your head in the sand. When the wise is instructed, he says, he receiveth knowledge. When the skeptical fool and the scorning fool come together, you will have the prevalence or the coming forward of the third fool, and that is the secular fool. Take your Bibles and go to Luke 12. Luke chapter number 12. It's in a wonderful parable that Jesus gives. The Bible says in verse number 13, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Hey, listen, man. I got a covetous brother. Well, you're covetous as well, Jesus is going to deal with. And he said unto him, Man... Who made me the judge or a divider over you? Now, Jesus is not abdicating his authority here. He's saying, look, I'm not related to you. (laughs) I'm not your blood kin. I can't be the arbiter of these things. And he said unto them. Now, Jesus broadens the conversation in verse number 15. Take heed, beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Man, that is a statement that is contrary to our modern age thinking. Bigger house, bigger 401k, a bigger car, bigger truck, bigger island, whatever we can buy today, we're buying. He says it's, your life doesn't consist of what you own. By the way, the more that you own, it ends up owning you. That's what we're going to find out. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. I mean, I am rich, brother. I got a lot of money. What do I do with all my wealth? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The third fool is the secular fool. The secular fool only lives for the now. He only lives for today. Eat, drink, and be merry is the parable. This is your best life. They even have preachers today that are writing books. Your best life now. Can I tell you something? I hope to live a good life now, but my best life is going to be when I'm perfect and sinless with my Savior, Jesus Christ. The other statement is what YOLO, not Golo. That's what ladies think when they go to bargain hunt or somewhere like that. YOLO, get that price down. I, I, I appreciate that. Really, Gary liked my joke. Enjoy life now. That's the mindset that just make yourself happy. Who's anyone else to tell you you're wrong? That's a prevalent thought today. It's a sec. It's a secular thought. By the way, it's a damnable lie. It is true that we only live once in this life. But this life is the only time that we of free will can choose to serve God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you, man, are having a lot of conversations in your soul." You're having a lot of internal conversations. Maybe you should have a spiritual conversation and not a secular one. Maybe in your soul you should say, what good have I done for God and His cause lately? This man was materially motivated when he should have been eternally motivated. The only valuation of success that this man had was increase. And God says the only measurable That you should have in your soul is not increase, but rather influence. Who are you impacting for the cause of Christ? So let me make a closing application. And I'll be a little bit longer in my closing than I normally am. Usually my closings are less than 30 seconds. And this one's going to be about four or five minutes as we close. I chose at the beginning King Saul's words because it seems that even God's anointed ones can choose to play the role of a fool. Take your Bibles one last time and turn over to 2 Peter chapter number 1. As we consider the three fools, what I would ask you in closing is in your life have you played the fool? Are you playing the fool? Peter takes up this truth that King Saul gives to us and warns that even those who have trusted in Christ can forget, that's the word he uses, and become a fool in their everyday life. Look what he says in verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith. With us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through what? The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter writes wanting grace and peace to be multiplied to we believers. It only comes through a deeper knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, he says. Beginning in verse number 3, he goes on. Peter proceeds to give to us a pattern for increased Faithfulness towards God. He says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby, or by that calling, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these... By the way, the great and precious promises are in this book that we preached on this morning that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Instead of being a fool, you can be a man filled with faith, he says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, he's just expressed how wonderful salvation is and just the fullness of what you get in salvation. He said, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to that faith in Jesus Christ, virtue. Virtue means a complete yielding to God. To virtue, knowledge. That means an understanding, a consumption of the instruction manual. To knowledge, temperance. That is self-control in the things of this life. And to temperance, patience. Patience is endurance. And to patience, godliness or living like God. To godliness, brotherly kindness. That is phileo, Philadelphia. And to brotherly kindness, agape. You will progressively get better in how you love one another. That's what he says. Quite the opposite of a fool. Quite the opposite of a scorner. For if these things be in you and abound, they, these things in progression, make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge... ...of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're a fool this evening. If you don't know Jesus Christ in a deeper way as a Christian, you're living foolish this evening. It's an interesting thing for us then in verse number 9 because he pivots and he gives us one last shot of warning. He tells us in verse 9 that some believers who have actually trusted in Jesus Christ, can become foolish in their lifestyle. And he says this, but he that lacketh these things. Of course, if he lacks faith in Jesus Christ, he's a fool already. He's not a Christian. He's not a believer in Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things. In other words, if after faith, these things have not been added to you, he is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Well, how does a Christian get to that state, Pastor? By not adding to their faith virtue and the list that follows. So without growing in God, without walking in the Spirit, the believer can become the skeptical fool. You can begin to doubt whether God really loves you. You can begin to doubt whether your life matters at all to Him, and if it doesn't matter to Him, why should He matter to you? This may lead you to becoming a scorning fool. We see this far too often in church families. The children of church folk begin to reject the holy and healthy ways of living. And ultimately, they end up as that secular fool. Only living for the now. Only wanting what makes them happy in this life. So I close tonight by asking, which fool are you? Hopefully none. (laughs) And some of you were like, I don't know which one. Hopefully none. (laughs) Maybe there's someone in our audience or maybe someone listening or watching online that is the skeptical fool. If you are, I ask you what I asked Sean 22 years ago. Go look in the mirror and convince yourself that there is no God before you try to convince me. If you do find yourself wavering and wandering into some of these foolish areas, if you, like King Saul, have played the fool, then repent. That's the beauty of salvation. You can just turn back to God. Instead of saying, there is no God, you can say, here I am, God. Please forgive me. You must, as we preach this morning, surrender to God and to His Word and let it work in your life. Father, help.